Welcome to the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to be on the cutting edge of SaaS tech sales. We provide the tools you need to take advantage of the rapidly changing sales environment. We bring you the leading experts on the front lines of SaaS sales and distill down our famous masterclasses into bite-sized practical tips. Your hosts will be Ash Alley and Matt Milligan. And on this podcast, we will be transforming your ability to sell more and smash your targets. Welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Sales Performance Podcast. And for today's episode, we're going to switch it up a little. We've had a number of episodes diving deeper into the current state of sales leadership. We've had a number of CROs, RevOps leaders on the show to talk all things sales performance. And today I'm actually inviting a fellow founder into the hot seat. Today's guest is a former revenue leader who has built and scaled some awesome brands in the SaaS space, including the likes of Outreach and Yieldify. Today's guest has stepped over onto the other side of the table, shall we say, and is building for his former role, really. Today's guest is Mick Gossett, who is the CEO and co-founder of JoinFlows. Welcome on the show, Mick. Thank you, Matt. Nice to be here. Awesome. Mick, I know you've got your own podcast. Not only are you on the other side of the table for the business you're building now, but today is also opportunity <laughs> to be on the other side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mick, I always like to just start by learning a bit more about your journey. And I know you've had a particularly interesting one. So for the listeners of the show who haven't connected with you before, help us understand, you know, how did you get into revenue and what's your journey been today. So my name is Mick. I'm the CEO of JoinFlows. We are a revenue execution platform. We help with team alignment, resource orchestration, and faster sales processes. And I essentially built JoinFlows to fix my own issues around visibility, predictability, forecasting. And how I ended up in sales to start with was I'm a former professional athlete. And when I finished my sports career, I finished my uh, university degree and I started looking for a role essentially, which was challenging and rewarding in terms of how much you were putting in was how much you were getting out of. And there was nothing more in line with sports than a sales role. So I started as an SDR in a company called Rich Relevance. They've now been acquired by a, another company called Algonomy, but they were big in MarTech product recommendations. The founder was the guy who invented the product recommendation engine at Amazon. So San Francisco Bay is really hyped up, really cool, fun. And I moved my way from being an SDR to a team leader on the prospection side to become an AE. And eventually I took on the role as a sales director at Yieldify and that was my first step in a leadership role where everything needed to be done from scratch. Despite being a massive brand and being recognized, these guys were going to market with a new business model, an entirely new way to sell and everything was based on the previous business model so it's like no longer relevant. So we had to figure it out and within three, four years of me taking on the team and then essentially developing and scaling that new playbook globally, the company got acquired by Publicity. By then, I had joined Outreach to lead the sales team and good results there. But I always felt like there was a missing piece in terms of how you align the team and how you actually operate those bigger deals, how do you scale up market and all of that. So hence why we started coding during flows and now we are fully committed to uh, taking it to market. Awesome, man. Congrats on, on the evolution and really, really exciting to hear about the joint flows journey so far. Yeah, well, ups and downs. So as long as there's more ups than downs, <laughs> I think you're climbing up and in the right direction, but very interesting 
interesting, extremely rewarding because early stage, there's no one else to blame. You know, like you're on your own with your co-founding team and you look around and yeah, if you've not done something, that's on you. If you've done something poorly, that's on you as well. And whatever works is also on you. So it's as rewarding as it's difficult sometimes. You spoke about obviously your transition from professional sport into revenue and working in the world of sales. I do find it super interesting how many guests have been on this show who are now in seriously influential, should we call it, in the SaaS space, revenue leadership roles. And many of them have come from a strong sporting background. Help us understand like what are some of those similarities you spoke about or you touched upon there in terms of the sporting world that you've been able to bring into your career? Yeah, I think there are three main things, really. The first one is delayed gratification. And often if you've got a sport background, it takes a while for you to get recognized at the highest level. And we're not speaking about quarters, we're speaking about years and injuries and setbacks to that square one as opposed to the previous step. And I think when you're a professional athlete, it's part of the job, right? This, this setbacks, this inability to understand what the reward is until you've done a few years, sometimes decades. So this relates really well to the sales world where by the time you find out the results of your initiatives, you might be a year, year and a half out of the inception of this initiative. The second thing, and those two points are very around the mindset and the psychology behind success, I think, is how long can you stay? And we were speaking about this actually stuck in the mud or outside of your comfort zone, what I call hell. So how long can you perform in hell for so that it becomes your new comfort zone? And if you're used to it, and I think it's Mike Tyson says something like, yeah, start counting the reps once it's starting to burn, not from the first rep onwards. Once you're used to that, then you find yourself moving back to the comfort zone when you're in compete mode. So when you have to pitch, when you have to impress someone, an investor or potential client, you travel backwards as opposed to travel outside of your comfort zone. So a good performer usually does that. He stays out or she stays out of the comfort zone for as long as, as that person can. And then they would go back towards the comfort zone in order to then deliver the content, right? And typically what people do is they stay within their comfort zone and then they go outside of the comfort zone to compete and then they struggle and they fail and they start having doubts and then they quit. So when you're a sportsman, you typically put yourself in a lot of trouble within the training ground so that when you do compete, it actually feels easier and then that's when you succeed. And the last thing is, it's very metric focused. So when you do something, the reward is your rank at a certain level or you score a certain amount of points or you judge by a few people and they give you a specific score. And that's very similar to the sales world, the revenue world where, you know, your commission or revenue you deliver or the conversion rate you get or the retention you have. Makes complete sense to me as someone that tried and, and failed to make it on the pro golf tour. Lots of that resonates for sure. I think particularly interesting was when you were talking about putting yourself outside of the comfort zone during training, during practice, and then almost sort of taking a step back into your comfort zone for performance mode. If I contrast that with many of the revenue teams that we work with today, it feels like we start working with teams who are, I mean, the training and practice is often non-existent. So it feels like there's a lot that we could be learning from the professional sporting world in terms of getting that balance right. Yeah, create an environment where failing is easy, but it's almost also encouraged and then increase that level of complexity to fail as well. But within your own rules, so like when you go and compete, you put your best foot forward and your level of stress is much lower. I've been to a lot of companies where they launch a new product, they give you the script or they give you like the few hours of enablement and that's that. And then they're actually going to have to pitch it for the first time in a live environment with people actually you're trying to convince them to spend money on you. And often it fails because that pressure is too much to handle and you haven't covered all the options that could go wrong, you know? So if you can create a room where you've got this playground where you can fail, but also get an increased level of complexity as you learn how to pitch it or to explain what you do, then going outside of this 
from just becomes easier. What are some things you've done with your teams in the past that have helped create that kind of safe space or that practice ground environment? Uh, the first thing is, and I think that's where probably is similar to sports, but it's, it's a little bit more intellectual, if that makes sense. You have to understand what the problem is, and then you have to create a set of milestones to validate that you've gained a new skill and you've mastered it. Gaining it is fine. There's usually a draw after that. I think it's got the forgetting phase where you learn it, you lose it, and then you acquire it. And a lot of sales leaders or enablement leaders think that as soon as you've learned something, you're, you're able to actually go and perform it. But that's when things start to get wrong usually. So understand what's wrong, create a roadmap of wins that you can tick off and approve, validate, and then build that over a period of time so that you don't just progress, but you also go back to the basics as you move to more and more complicated stuff. And then once you've finished your curriculum, then yeah, go on the field. It sounds like constant reinforcement is key. And Mick, I mean, we're recording this Q4 of 2023. I'm hearing a lot from CROs, VPs, that the big complaint and pushback they get from the sales managers is they don't have time to coach and reinforce. Is that a kind of excuse or what? what's going on there? It depends what they think their role is. You know, I think there's a twofold issue here is defining what the role of the person is to start with. Are you a coach or are you a super rep? And then putting a framework which enables these people to be successful. If the person who's coaching a team who's benefiting from the team's success doesn't feel like coaching is the top priority, maybe their metrics is not in line with or their commission plan is not in line with what they need to be focusing on. But as I say, like, I always go back to this example is people are looking for extreme coachability. I want to find people who are very, very coachable. And I always ask the questions, but why wouldn't they be coachable? Either you can't coach and you don't know how to do it, or these people don't have anything to do with you to start with and there's a reporting problem. So if the people are reluctant to coach and develop their team members, then yeah, I would I would look into the whys instead of, of the what. Yeah, it's super interesting. I can't help but think some mindset challenges are definitely holding back a lot of revenue teams right now. And I'm definitely hearing that a lot from the market. The other thing that is coming up quite a lot is just inability, like inexperience when it comes to coaching. And perhaps a lot of, you know, I had a CRO this morning say to me, you know, she's sort of head in her hands saying, all I ever hear from my manager group is coaching, 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 but none of them ever do it. Yeah, yeah. But does it come back to like an inexperienced thing of that they don't know how to coach, therefore they kind of do lip service to it, but they never actually do the thing? Yeah, well, a lot of those managers, first line managers, are often promoted from the team they're currently coaching. And it's like anything, you're not necessarily as a good salesperson, as a good individual contributor. You might not have the skill set or the knowledge to then coach and take on a, a whole team of individual performers. And on paper, it might look very similar to, you know, aligning people that you would do when you're running a big deal some big deals but when you're on the ground it's very different and it's even worse when you're actually promoting from your own team when your former teammates are now reporting into you there are pedagogies you know involved psychological tactics and strategies you need to understand and anything around leadership skills in terms of aligning the team towards a goal and motivating them is also something that you typically have you have to learn how to do that so you throw them under the bus saying oh you've been a top performer I'm sure you can lead the team and actually it's a very different role and I don't see a lot of enablement functions teaching the core principle of how do you teach to people to start with and how do you get them to buy into your ideas yeah like train the trainer coach the coach I think there's some amazing insights there and particularly that transition from being an individual contributor and then getting promoted to the manager and then having to figure out how to coach your former colleagues that's a really interesting insight this is what I did so I was an IC and I was top IC at the time and I go, cool make you're now sales director like, okay so 
what do I do? You know, like, like what's the first thing to do? Do I, is this just like a bamboo thing or like an HR software thing where you just have the reporting lines and you approve holidays and stuff? How do I coach people? And typically what happens is they say, okay, well, this is how you forecast. This is how you run your uh, forecasting course. This is how you run your pipeline course. This is the structure and the, the workflows that we're following. But that's very surface level, right? It's okay. Well, that's two hours, six hours of my week. What about the other 70 hours I need to do like to spend with my team and enablement and all of that, struggling on deals and facing adversity altogether, internally and externally. You don't know, you have to figure it out. So when you're a good salesperson, typically you're emotionally connectable <laughs> with other people and that's where you probably over-index, but scaling that becomes really hard if you're just relying on your emotional skills. Yeah, that's a super interesting point. And it makes me question as well whether the profile of a successful sales leader in the past is going to look quite different to this future world that we're entering now. Yeah, and it begs the questions, the question which is, can you be a good sales leader without ever having been a salesperson? Because, you know, the opposite could be true as well. Maybe you can be a great sales leader having a, a good IC, but maybe you can also be a really good being never having been in sales. That person from Sixth Sense, I think, who's a former CMO and now, now CRO of the company, yeah, fair play. I think that's the direction. That's interesting. And shout out to Latine for that, that promo. That's awesome. Makes me think of Jose Mourinho, right? He never played football, but went on to become one of the greatest managers of all time. Yeah, exactly. Similarities to be drawn. Let's talk about delayed gratification, Mick. You spoke about it there in your comparison with sport. How do you think about delayed gratification in a revenue role? It depends on which side of the table you sit. Delayed gratification when you're in a leadership role can be lethal for your position. Like we see the average tenure of a VP of sales being, I think, 19 months and for a CRO between 20 and 23 months. So like, what's that for a company who's like six, seven years old? It's like a drop in the ocean. And then from an individual contributor viewpoint, you kind of have to be able to deliver really quickly if you want to keep your, your position as well. So the good companies are cognizant of that and they're like, yeah, actually we appreciate that ramping up takes X amount of months and then you build a pipeline and then you start delivering and then, you know, whatever happens microeconomically speaking as well is taken into account. But a lot of VC-backed companies, they're on the timer and you get the role, you better start delivering before your first sales cycle is even finished. So how does that work? I don't know, but that's very much the mindset. So there's that notion of you have to be able to endure that journey and you have to plan for it. But there's also your ability to communicate on what's part of that gratification and the milestones that are building up towards the results. So if you've got a business model that you can use for that, then it's easy to say, well, I've built I've built X amount of pipeline. I'm progressing my opportunities at X amount of success. And we are seeing this early sign of results, like good results happening. But it requires you being able to communicate internally as well. So yeah, it's, it's hard in business when you're being paid by someone. <laughs> you know, you have to deliver quickly. So you have to find tactics and techniques to do that. Yeah, that communication point feels so crucial though, doesn't it? Because like ultimately, it's not anyone to blame for those statistics you shared there, right? You know, founders have got bosses of their own. They're called boards. Boards are putting pressure on the founders for results and an aggressive growth plan and if that forecast can't be hit in time then it's serious consequences right for the business be it a down round or running out of money and that then in turn gets passed on to often the revenue leader who's got to figure out how to make the commitment to the board happen but communicating across those three levels feels like something super important yeah and I feel like again an enablement gap there is you know we speak a lot about how do you communicate with external stakeholders but most of your communications are done internally and people are expecting you to know how to do this so you know you always get that audience this guy, right? Is or, or this girl? This 
so successful. She's so talented. She's awful to work with. She's very bossy or he's very bossy. Yeah, but have you taught this person to do it? You know, the politics and, you know, how to manage other stakeholders, teammates. It's not natural because you might never have had to do that before. So I think it's part of the learning process as well. Yeah, entirely. So delayed gratification, importance of communication, managing expectations. But we talk so often about the importance of quick wins, particularly in the work we do here at U-Hubs, you know, helping enable and build sales teams. And if that quick win doesn't happen early, I I think about it like a kind of confidence level. You know, those confidence levels drastically start to drop for a rep, right? Yeah, make a bet, <laughs> make a calculated risk, become a star early on. You know, there are a lot of, of salespeople who are, they've built their career around this. They're like, okay, I've got this five opportunities. I'm going to make a big bet on this one, all in. I'm going to draw in all the resources possible. And if it works out, it's very likely that they're then going to become the top performer of the next year and then again, then the third year round and then the fourth year round. If it fails, then that's the end of the journey as well. So be confident in your and then make sure you do the right calculations. Yeah, going all in on a certain deal takes some guts. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's where the experience happens as well a little bit and helps with your ability to understand where those quick wins are. But managing expectations and reaching out for help is, I think, the, the required skill to be successful at scale. And I see too many lone wolves there who just feel like, oh, well, you know what, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it on my own. And then actually that backfires often really quickly as well. Yeah, super interesting. The point you spoke about was metrics. Mix. So I want to move on to talk about metrics here. And I know there's nice alignment with how you are aligning revenue teams over at Joint Flows. So think about some recent examples from the sporting world that I've seen, you know, just amazing, really. I was having a conversation the other day with someone who was telling me that Liverpool Football Club have become so metrics driven in the way that they optimize their teams. They've now got a specialized throw-in coach whose only role is to monitor data on throw-ins and to try to optimize that part of their play. You contrast some of these use cases. There was another one, former retired Real Madrid player who's now set up an AI agency to help football clubs use data and AI to optimize team performance. We still have revenue leaders in 2023 who are, you know, making really subjective hiring decisions, don't have their metrics in order, are kind of using a lot of gut instinct to coach and, and enable the teams. Just understand what, what you think is important from a revenue leadership perspective when it comes to being metrics driven. I think you need to understand what metrics you've got, how much of it is good and what you're lacking. What you're lacking is really hard to do because you, you don't really know what you don't know. So that requires you going to market and find solutions that provide you with a new data set or a new angle or a new way to visualize your data. So if you look at what data you've got, it's very easy now to understand, especially if you're in a subscription model company, like to understand what good looks like and what bad looks like as well, but to create a core set of data points, which you can then rely on. And it goes from the top of the funnel all the way down to the, to the bottom. And when I'm, I say bottom, I, I speak about renewal and retention and, you know, really like the end of the life cycle of the client. Then you have to understand the quality of the data. Okay, I've got good data points. Have I got complete data points or have I got gaps in my data points as well? So it could be on the prospection side or it could be on, uh, let's say, funnel progression. Okay, where you're looking at stage and the speed at which progress between the stages of your funnel. But you look at the, compa the complexity of the stages as well. What's typically involved, which milestones are part of those stages. It's really hard to get to that level of understanding to start with. And CRM platforms don't give you such ability to look at your data. And then it's, okay, what am I missing? That is going to take my game to the next level. But first, you have to understand what the first two areas of data collection should be and then create your dashboard, which you can then build on top of. If you think about your own leadership career, how has that kind of like master dashboard changed in different organizations? Do you have a, a core set of metrics that you tend to carry around with you? Yeah, so I look at it in leading and lagging indicators. What makes me look at growth versus looking at risks? And it depends on 
from how much remit I've got. So if you've got the entirety of the revenue, which is currently my case, then you're looking at it very differently and maybe on a broader scale than if you're just new business or if you just buy plan coverage. But what's really important and what is often missed is the amount of time you stay within a stage, but also as in the duration, but also the complexity of that stage, which is the level of effort to get to that next stage. And people forget to get these two dimensions together a lot of the time. They say, oh, well, I only spent 26 days there. So out of a 12-month sales process, it's actually quite fast. Yeah, okay, but how many activities have you done during these 26 days? Yeah, actually, that's 90% of my sales process. Okay, so your most important stage is that one, right? There's a, a momentum play on the other stages, but where the deal is happening or dying is in your effort happening during that really small stage, you know, in, in terms of duration, but very crucial in terms of the ability to land the deal. And if you don't put these two things together, then you're always in a position where your forecast is not quite accurate because you don't take into account all these moving parts. But if you do, then you're in a position where your forecast is extremely accurate and actually you can have a pulse of the health of the business really quickly as well. So it's hard to get. It's not enjoyable to look at. And I think that's more to the point. Oh, I don't want to look at it because then that's something I need to work on. I don't want to want that. Yeah, that's super insightful. Not only looking at the kind of top level conversion from stage to stage, for example, but actually going that level deeper. And as you say, especially nowadays where the deals are more complex and you've got more stakeholders involved, it could take you a year to build a business case and three months to get procurement. But these three months is going to be a year worth of activity with multiple stakeholders internally, externally, tens of documents having been built bespoke to that specific deal. So if you just look at duration and close uh, win rates for stages, then you miss out entirely on this dimension of efficiencies and, and productivity. As the saying goes, there's many ways to skin a cat, right? So when we're thinking about metrics, you know, you've just given a unique insight there around how you think about going that level deeper. There's so many ways to analyze and scrutinize a, a pipeline, right? And an individual rep. What do you think about where are we headed in terms of metrics in revenue? Because we're kind of sensing at the moment, everyone's got their own opinion. People kind of have their own style, their own unique way. We talk a lot at the moment about automation with AI. Do you think we're headed for a more kind of standardized model for revenue leadership? No, I think it's the opposite. I think there's the ability to personalize and create content is becoming commoditized and extremely scalable, especially around the prospection side of activities where you've got companies which are enabling you to plug in like thousands of mailboxes. So literally contact a lot more people than you would do manually. So your personalization is almost irrelevant at this point in time because it's completely thrown in the noise and people don't open emails to start with. But what we're seeing is, at least from my point of view, is the complexity of the buying journey doesn't justify a funnel anymore. So when you look at that very complex 56 milestones, 26 stakeholders, B2B buying journey versus your five-stage funnel in Salesforce or in HubSpot, then there's obviously going to be a lot of blind spots happening there. And the structure that you use to then report internally, which is that top-down approach, funnel shape, you know, model, doesn't relate anymore. It just doesn't adapt. So that requires a lot of training and a lot of intellect in order to be able to map and then deliver based on what the buyer is going through versus what you need to achieve to communicate internally. But I think that the best salespeople will become only better by being more enabled, being better trained, being more aware of what needs to happen and being more able to actually create those connections, get information out of the buyers. Yeah, totally. And I think that supports much of what we're seeing in the market at the moment. Guy and his team at Epster did an interesting report looking at the gap between high performers and low. It's just widened this year. Yeah, and I think it will keep on widening and those good salespeople will enable themselves with AI as well, just like the poor ones who do. But with all the knowledge on top of that and the ability to understand where their gaps are and where their strengths are as well 
you know, that to then work on this. Yeah, completely. So talk to us a little bit about how you're approaching that challenge at Join Flows, because I know this is a space, that, particularly that metrics problem, and you talked about those 26 milestones. Yeah, help us understand, like, how are you seeing that part of the problem being solvable in a different way? So I think sales, especially when you do bigger deals, has become project management. It's become project management in many ways in your ability to align teams, orchestrate stakeholders, and mirror your selling process to buying procedure, knowing that that buying procedure might not be fully identified as well. If you're in an innovative business, you might be the first person to ever sell this type of technology to the person who's buying it. So they might not have a blueprint to follow. It already becomes about who's the better project manager. And by project management, you do two things. You've got great built-in deal management, which enables you to orchestrate and deliver on those complicated milestones and the connections between those milestones. We speak a lot about the procurement process, the legal process, and all of that. But it also enables you to create valuable relationships with your buyers and trusting relationships with your buyers because they don't see you as trying to shut down their throat, your selling process so that you can then fill your CRM tool with the right information. They're seeing it as, okay, how do I help you move that deal forward, move that opportunity forward so that I can solve your problem as quickly on as possible. And that becomes a very different type of relationship where it's buyer-centric and buyer-enabled as opposed to sales-centric and sales methodology dictated. Like, okay, Medic is great and ask the right questions. It's a good way to align how you communicate and how you speak about deals internally. But if you only have Medic and poor deal management, you're not going to do well. Versus having very good deal management, but no sales methodology, then you're very likely to do well. That's super interesting. You think the deal management side is it outweighs importance over having a consistent methodology or qualification criteria? I think 80% of it is deal management and 20% is sales methodology. And I think with experience, your need to rely on a sales methodology becomes smaller and smaller. You often see this in businesses where you join into a new business and the salespeople are all using a different sales methodology and they could all be overperforming as well. So obviously that's not based on the sales methodology. It's based on how they manage the deals towards completion, which is deal management. But they're usually under-equipped. That's the reason why we're in the market. They're under-equipped to do that efficiently. I think deal management is much more important, especially on bigger deals than sales methodology. It's interesting. Would you not consider a little bit of overlap if you were to draw those as like a Venn diagram? You know, like your medic as an example would kind of form part of your deal management strategy. Yeah, I don't think it helps you manage the deal though. I think it helps you qualify it and report about his health or the health of the deal in- internally as opposed to really push it forward. I take Medic as an example. So there's hundreds of methodologies, Miller-Heinemann, you know, strategic selling, all of that. It's really good at helping you structure your questioning and, you know, understanding what you should ask next. But when you've got stakeholders you don't have direct access to, this sales methodology is, is irrelevant for them. They're not even exposed to it. So it's really about how you manage this. How do you get your champion to give you access to these other stakeholders? Okay, it might be done to the metric or to the pain you're trying to solve, but really it's about how you manage them to get it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And that's where those project management skills come in. Makes me wonder whether we're going to start seeing a bit more of a shift, you know, as deal complexities going up and up. We're going to start seeing a shift to like more work on soft skills and there's organization, communication, project management type skills. Yeah. And again, big lack, I think, in enablement when you speak about enterprise strategy strategy deals is okay, how do you project manage that you can speak about your value proposition you know how to itch it you know what your personas usually struggle with managing stakeholders aligning internally just to start with just internally how do you align internal stakeholders across multiple deals really hard yeah it is we had a CFO on the show a couple of weeks back he was talking about that alignment and all that misalignment that he quite often sees you know and he talked about the misalignment between business objectives versus financial objectives which usually come in a form of a business case yeah and if you have that misalignment then it's just going to fall on deaf ears because the CFO doesn't care about 
what you're preaching for. Yeah. My mentor, when I first got my closing role in sales, said to me, Mick, are you sure? Because you're going to spend more time selling internally than you will be selling externally. And uh, I didn't quite get it because it was an enterprise sales role and um, I had no idea what I was doing. Only six months later, when I needed executive alignment and I needed resources from San Francisco and prioritization, I realized that, oh, wow, okay, I need to build a business case internally now in order to get this prioritized. And that's going to take just as much time as the one I would have created externally. Totally. Mick, I've loved the chat on the show today and like the time's just flown by. Like We could continue this all day. Uh, <laughs> love the themes that we covered today, particularly around, obviously, delayed gratification, thinking about how that rears its head in sales and commercial teams and what we can learn from the world of professional sport. We talked about resilience and going through help. How long are you willing to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, outside of the, the actual performance of the sale? And then thirdly, we talked about being metrics driven. I think some amazing insights you shared there in terms of thinking about aligning your revenue org. For those listening who would like to dive into these topics more, Mick, and would love to continue learning from your wisdom and your experience, where's the best place for them to connect with you? LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. So yeah, click the follow button or just connect with me. Or you go on the website. If you want to speak to us, you can ask for a meeting right from there. It can be about joint flows. It doesn't have to. We're happy to help as well. Awesome, man. Appreciate you taking the time, Mick. Glad we can make it happen. Thank you, Matt. See you later. By uncovering blind spots in performance, motivation and skills, UHubs helps busy sales leaders at top SaaS companies to optimize their sales enablement so they can develop their reps and grow revenue. The UHubs Pulse platform visualizes each team's development needs, personalized upskilling and provides data-driven coaching recommendations. These save sales managers 40 plus hours per quarter and help reps to ramp up 30% faster. Supercharge your sales team by booking a demo today.